Father, thank you for the wonderful and joyful reminder through these songs that we sing that you have called a people out of the domain of darkness and you've transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of your love, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have shown us Christ. You have shown us that he is beautiful and to be cherished and treasured. That he is the lone sacrifice who paid for our sins on the cross. And the Lord, by trusting in him, we can have a right relationship with you. Thank you for that great reality and that now, because of the work that you've done in our hearts to show us the beauty of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we can sing to you. We can hear your word. We can apply your word. We can fellowship with one another because our identity is in Christ. Thank you for the privileges that we have, especially in our country. And we pray that you would sustain and uphold our brethren all over the world who are suffering opposition and persecution because of their faith, many of whom we won't see until we get to heaven. Father, sustain them. Empower them by your Spirit. Fill them with your joy so that they would feel a great sense of your presence even as they worship, Lord, even in underground churches, hiding from the authorities. Father, be with them. Show them Christ in a great way today and this weekend, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Mark 6. Mark 6. Mark 6, verses 30 through 44 is our text for this morning. And I want to ask you to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. If you're able to stand, if you're not, it's okay. You can follow as you sit. Stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran to get there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it is already quiet, quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend two hundred denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And they found out, and they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were five thousand men who ate the loaves. You may be seated. The Lord blessed the reading of his word. This week I was reminded again and again of the fact that God is a God who does miracles. Amen? He's a God who does miracles. And I came across this. 
More than 32 years ago, Pam and her husband, Bob, were serving as missionaries to the Philippines and praying for a fifth child. Pam contracted amoebic dysentery. I hope I said that right. An infection of the intestine caused by a parasite found in contaminated food or drink. She went into a coma and was treated with strong antibiotics before they discovered she was pregnant. Doctors urged her to abort the baby for her own safety, telling her the medicines had caused irreversible damage to her baby. She refused the abortion and cited her Christian faith as the reason for her hope that her son would be born without the devastating disabilities physicians predicted. While pregnant, Pam nearly lost their baby four times, but still refused to consider abortion. She recalled making a pledge to God with her husband, If you will give us a son, we'll name him Timothy and we'll make him a preacher. Pam ultimately spent the last two months of her pregnancy in bed and eventually gave birth to a healthy baby boy, August 14th, 1987. Pam's youngest son is indeed a preacher. He preaches in prisons, makes hospital visits, and serves with his father's ministry in the Philippines. Listen to this. He also played football. His name is Tim Tebow. Very popular athlete, for those of you who don't know. Played uh, college football, professional football, and baseball even. Oh, and he's now engaged to Miss Universe, who is also a Christian. (laughs) Who is also a Christian, by the way. True story. True story. What a wonderful miracle. Amen? And of course, the greatest miracle of all in Tim Tebow's life was the miracle of salvation. The new birth. This is a man who is saved. You know, our Creator, it's a reminder that our Creator is a God who not only desires to do amazing things in each of our lives, doesn't He? But He has the ability and the unlimited power to carry out whatever He wills to do. We know this from the experience of our own lives. And this morning we have, in the passage I just read, we have another wonderful opportunity to see the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, do yet another powerful miracle. Mark's focus in the first eight chapters, and as we've seen over the months that we've covered Mark, is to show miracle after miracle after miracle for us to behold Jesus and His mighty power. He wants to present Christ to us in the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, so that in the latter, the second eight chapters of the book of Mark, we see the passion of Christ, His suffering, what He did, namely dying in the place of sinners, paying for our sins. So everything is focused towards showing us who Jesus is. Answering that question of who is Jesus. In fact, everything sort of climaxes, if you will turn with me forward to chapter 8 of Mark and verse 27, with a great confession, an open confession by Peter as the spokesman of the disciples. Mark eight twenty seven. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. 
The parallel passage of Matthew 16, 16 has Peter saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That was that is the climax of the opening eight chapters upon which everything hinges. And then the latter, the second nine, eight chapters of Mark. Then we head to the cross with Christ, where Mark wants us to know that the passion of the Christ, Jesus, in light of who he is is now going to die for sinners because he alone qualifies to be the redeemer of mankind. And so from that point on, notice in verse 31, after that confession of this is who you are, Jesus, it says in verse 31 that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He says it again in chapter 9, if you will notice with me, in verse 31. He was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will three days rise again, three days rise again later, three days later, sorry. And then in chapter 10 and verse 33, notice, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Clearly, after that confession of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and following, now Mark is telling us Jesus is going to the cross and he's explicitly, openly telling his, uh, telling people what he is about to do. He's going to the cross, especially his disciples. Everything climaxes then to this open confession of Peter. And I don't want you to forget about this because as we go back to Mark chapter 6, You remember that there are all kinds of opinions flying around about Jesus. Herod, who who, uh, kills um, John the Baptist, is also wondering about who this Jesus is. His popularity is growing. His fame is growing. And so we must ask ourselves yet again, where does our passage, Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44, then fit within the flow of Mark's argument? And what exactly, why does Mark place... The feeding of the 5,000 here in this particular location. It's not just chronological. And I think the answer is this. In the midst of all of these opinions flying around about who Jesus is, our passage thunderously answers that question. Jesus is God. He's the bread of life in whom we find rest and provision for all that we need. That's who He is, says Mark. And we're going to see that. And beloved, I want to remind us that it is so important that we get an accurate picture of Christ, isn't it? That's why we have four Gospels. Think about it. Why do we have four Gospels? Because if the Old Testament anticipates the coming of Christ, and Acts through Revelation gives the, the, unfolds the application and the implications of Christ, then listen, the four Gospels from different perspectives present Christ so that we behold Him in all of His glory, His person, that He's God and His work, that He lived a perfect life, died in the place of sinners, paying for our sins, and rose victoriously from the dead three days later. So Why? So that we might believe in that Gospel, in that good news, in that Lord and Savior, right? Mark's desire is that we would behold Jesus so that we might worship Him, so that we might live for Him. So our passage this morning, we see that Mark wants us to behold Christ yet again. And what in particular? That He's God. That He's the bread of life 
in whom we find rest and provision for all that we need. And I want us to see this as we focus on three snapshots of our Lord here in this narrative in this particular account. Okay, It's as if you were there to watch this amazing miracle and you took out your iPhone, if you had an iPhone at the time, right? And you took three pictures that tell a story at that time as you watched this great miracle unfold. Three pictures of Christ that would allow you to then go back and remember Him as we're going to see here in this particular message, okay? Snapshot number one is the Lord's prudence. The Lord's prudence in verses 30 through 32. I realize that prudence is not a common word that we use anymore, but it's got the idea of using sound judgment, of using, of exercising wisdom in life's situations. We see the amazing prudence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ here in verses 30 through 32, and really the whole account. In verse 30, the disciples have returned from their short-term mission trip. And after reporting to, to Jesus about this particular trip, you can imagine how tired and exhausted the disciples are. Not only physically, from all their walking and all of their travels, but also mentally. If you're a teacher or you've taught in some capacity uh, at some point in your life, or maybe you know someone who's taught, uh, they will tell you that few things are more tiresome and more exhausting than teaching. And it's not just the act of teaching, that, that 30 minutes or hour in my case, right? It's not just the act of teaching, but everything that goes into preparing for teaching before people. It's exhausting. You feel as if you just ran a 26-mile marathon sometimes, right? Most exhausting afternoons for me are Sunday afternoons. Yet I'm rejoicing and relishing in the opportunity that I get no matter what. But you can imagine that they've been teaching and proclaiming the gospel and Jesus gave them power to do great miracles. They are tired. Well, our Lord knows this. And so after hearing the report of their mission, notice verse 31. He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. In the parenthetical commentary of Mark, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Throughout Mark, we've seen that Jesus and his disciples can't even take a break. They can't even pause just to care for their own basic needs. They can't even do that. There are the fickle, massive crowds constantly pushing and shoving to have their physical needs met over and over again. They never get any rest, it seems. And yet here is our wise Lord, our all-wise Lord, so insightful, so exercising such sound judgment, so sensitive to the, to the humanness of His disciples that He knows exactly what they need. What a beautiful snapshot of the wisdom of Christ. And even of His sensitivity to His, his disciples, right? Often we forget, even as human beings, even as we look at this account, we forget about the fact that, you know what, our merciful high priest knows our needs, doesn't he? He knows our needs, spiritual and physical. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, reflecting on the, on the humanity of Christ, makes applications to Christians, and listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. He says, Therefore... Christ had to be made like his brethren in all things. Speaking of taking on human nature. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For since Jesus himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. See, Jesus took on human nature, added humanity, his human nature to his deity, not only to die for sinful, sinful people like us and take our punishment who have believed in him, but also, beloved, so that he might empathize with us as our merciful and faithful high priest. And we can go to him, can't we? He feels our humanness. He knows our vulnerabilities as human beings. And yet, Hebrews 4.15 says that Christ was tempted in all things as we are, listen to this, yet without sin. Not only is he an empathetic high priest, but he was victorious over sin again and again and again. He never sinned. Blameless, spotless. That's why he can go to the cross and be the lone Savior qualified to die for sinners on the cross. Can I remind you this morning that Christ knows what you're going through and knows what you need. You need to go to Him. You need to go to Him. So many of us are anxious about so many things in life. So many of us are, are weary and exhausted and understandably so, whether that be physical or spiritual. That is part of our humanness. Seasons of life come when we're discouraged. Listen, can I ask you, do you go to Christ who understands what you need physically and spiritually? Are you going to your merciful and faithful high priest? See, we don't spend time with Christ, beloved, in his word and prayer because he's lonely, because Jesus needs Kempis Hernandez. He needs me to go to him and, oh, Jesus, you're such a great guy. I know you're really lonely. You need me to come to you and spend time with you. Jesus doesn't need any of us. We don't go to Christ because we're adding something to our Savior. We don't spend time with Jesus in His Word and prayer because Jesus is incomplete and He needs us to make Him sufficient. We don't go to Jesus because we feel guilty and somehow we need to prove to Him that we really, really love Him. Jesus doesn't need our time, does He? Before any human being came into existence, before the foundation of the world, God is sufficient in Himself, didn't need any creature. He did it as an act of His love so that we would enjoy a beautiful creation, didn't He? God doesn't need us, beloved. Listen, we go to Christ and we prioritize time with Christ so that He ministers to us. Did you hear that? We don't go minister to Christ. He ministers to you in prayer and in the Word. And ministers to me. He shows us how great He is. He reminds us of how much He loves us in having died for us on the cross. Having paid for our sins. He reminds us of, of the fact that we can serve Him. He fills us with Himself when we're tired and exhausted and busy and all of that and distracted. And He reminds us, of course, of the hope that we have upon His return. Excuse me, His return. And no matter what happens in this life, He is returning. That we will be victorious with Him in a definitive way. See, Christ is an empathetic high priest. Thus, we must go to Him. And just as He knows our need, He knew the needs of His disciples, didn't He? Now, I want you to notice this. It wasn't just His disciples' need for rest that prompted our Lord to withdraw into this mini-retreat, or at least attempt to, as we're going to see. 
Matthew 4.13 tells us that it was also the news of John's death that prompted him to withdraw from there in a boat to a secluded place. See, again, even though our Lord Jesus is God, He's also human, and He feels the gravity at this point in the narrative of Mark of John's death. I mean, don't forget that John the Baptist is our Lord's cousin on the physical human level. Many of us have had loved ones die. And we experience the pain and the anguish of that. And the gravity of, in the season of life of having lost a loved one. Imagine Jesus. He was truly God, 100% God, but truly human, 100% felt the, the pain and the anguish of, of being separated from John the Baptist as well. And yet on the divine side of things, John is the, was the forerunner of Christ. Had such a great, intricate role to play in the ministry of our Lord. And so this is why he withdraws as well. He needs it himself. He needs it himself. And so here's our prudent, all-wise, insightful Savior, recognizing the need of the moment, showing compassion to his beloved disciples by taking them away on a mini-retreat to an unpopulated place. Verse 32 says that they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Three different times. Verse 31, verse 32, verse 35, it says, it talks about a secluded place. Luke 9.10 tells us the place was called Bethsaida, which was on the northeast shore of Galilee, a place that was, that was very private, very uninhabited. And so they need this, and so does our Lord. And so the first snapshot that we see here of our Lord is His prudence, the Lord's prudence. Notice the second snapshot that we see here in verses 33 and 34 is the Lord's pity. The Lord's pity. Not only is our Lord, does our Lord show Himself to be prudent, but our Lord is also full of pity or compassion. And we've seen this before in the book of Mark, haven't we? You remember back in Mark chapter 1 and verse 40, where it says that a leper came to Jesus, begging for Jesus' help. And it says there that Jesus was, was moved with compassion. Was moved with compassion. And that compassion drove him, by the way, note, to action. He even touched this man, and then he completely healed this leper. I mean, in those days, helping a leper like that, and let alone touching a leper, was unacceptable. They were considered ceremonially unclean. They were ostracized from society, even from their own physical families. And yet Jesus' deep pity and genuine love was shown in that instance, and again and again throughout His life. It reminded me of a Christian man who I remember taking on one trip once to a poverty-stricken location in another country. And there were a bunch of team members as well who, who were so afraid of just getting off of the bus. And they were handing kids with open windows money and throwing water bottles at these kids who are there and who are really thirsty and all of that because they're just afraid. And this one Christian brother gets off of the bus and for about 45 minutes he just sat down with those little ones and began to hug them, and he, was, he, was, he began to shed tears for them, and he gave them little gifts and all of that, and he talked to them, and he asked them questions and all of that. He relationally, personally interacted with these kids, different than the rest of the people that were there. You know, our Lord, all we have to do is look at the Gospels. That's how He operated, didn't He? It's, quite, it's, it's one thing to give stuff to people, and to hand people money, 
and to just give them physical provision. It's quite another thing to feel a genuine, heartfelt anguish and compassion for people, to put yourself in people's world and feel what they're feeling as much as you can possibly do. Jesus, our Lord, did that. He had that kind of pity and compassion for people. May we be the same way, beloved. The Lord was a perfect example of genuine, heartfelt, tender pity. And we see this displayed again here. After a five-mile or so boat ride, they are expecting to land ashore. But notice what happens in verse 33. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. Here again, they cannot even avoid the crowds. Somehow... Some of the people knew where they were headed and they ran on foot for about eight miles or so to wait for them to land ashore. And they're there waiting. Verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. I kept, I kept thinking about this, putting myself in the world of the disciples and our Lord. What would have gone through my mind if I saw all of these people waiting on land Me expecting to be with my disciples for rest and for privacy. We're all exhausted physically. Our mind is full. On top of that, Jesus is thinking he's weighed down with the news of his cousin John the Baptist, having been gruesomely and heartlessly murdered. And here are the fickle crowds again who want another physical miracle. And that's all they want. The mass crowds, most of them, The high percentage of them, they're not following Jesus because they believe that he is the son of God who can forgive them of their sins. They're coming to him because they want another physical miracle, as we're going to see later. How would you feel at that moment? How would you feel? Notice our Lord's response in verse 34. And he felt compassion for them, it says. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd And notice, he began to teach them many things. Oh, he puts us to shame, doesn't he? Rather than being frustrated at the people, rather than viewing the people as a nuisance, as an obstacle to his agenda, even his pure, perfect agenda, rather than viewing them as an invasion of his privacy, our Lord is moved with tender pity. See, Jesus recognized that this was a divine appointment. Right? And God will send us those oftentimes, right? Where we know we need a particular thing, at least from our perspective, we need a particular thing, we need rest and all of that, but God will send us those interruptions for us as Christians to set aside our plans to minister to other people. He will do that. Our Lord recognized that. They are vulnerable and helpless. That's why he has compassion for them. They are noticed like sheep without a shepherd. They are leaderless, helpless, vulnerable. These people Jesus recognized lacked direction like sheep without a shepherd. And rather than leaving them in that state, what does he want to do? He wants to help them. Notice verse 34. So he began to teach them many things. The miracle's coming. But what is his focus over and over again in the Gospel of Mark? It's not the miracle. Some people say that the Lord's priority was doing signs and wonders and miracles and healings. No, it wasn't. 
His first priority was telling people the good news about himself because he understood that beyond the physical needs of people, the surface superficial needs of people that are also important, their deepest need was to be reconciled to a holy God. And that could only happen by people believing in him, right? Putting their trust in him. And so Jesus' focus was teaching them. And the miracles confirmed his claims about what he said about himself so that they would realize who he is and they would put their trust in him. What a beautiful snapshot here of our Lord and his compassion and his pity for hopeless, helpless people. We should be the same, beloved, by the grace of God. We should have the same degree of pity and compassion for people that we see out in our society. You know, I was really convicted as I was meditating on this passage and over and over again through the Gospel of Mark. I've told many of you, oh, Pat, when you say, Pastor, thank you for that, that message or the Gospel of Mark. Um, thank you for it being so convicting or whatever. And oftentimes I'll tell some of you who have said things like that, you know what? Thank you. I just want you to know that in private, God deals with me over and over again. I was so convicted as I was watching, as I was meditating upon this passage, that you know what? Oftentimes, even when, I am, when I'm running errands around town, when I am going into different stores and getting in long lines, when I'm stuck in traffic out on the freeway or one of the major roads around here, I'm oftentimes driven to be impatient, to grumble, to view people as an obstacle to my agenda, the things that I have I need to go do, and things that are good that I need to get done. But people all of a sudden become a, a, an obstacle to my plans. I don't see them as, a, as an opportunity an opportunity to pray for them, an opportunity to look over into the eyes of someone and be able to to, uh, bring that person before the Lord and ask God that maybe He would save that person. How oftentimes we view people that way, don't we? We'll do that in our home. We'll do that in our jobs. We'll do that out when we're just running errands around town. We'll do that when we involve our kids in sports. It's all about the activity. It's all about the event. What about the people who are there? Life and ministry, beloved, is about people. If we learn something about our Lord Jesus and even what he taught his disciples is that life and ministry is about people, right? About people. J.C. Rao comments, quote, Let us never forget that our Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. Listen to this. It is poor theology which teaches that Christ cares only for believers. There is warrant in Scripture for us telling the chief of sinners that Jesus pities them and cares for their souls, that Jesus is willing to save them from their sins and invites them to believe and be saved. Let us ask ourselves, he writes, whether we know anything of the mind of Christ. Are we like him, tenderly concerned about the souls of the unconverted? Do we like him feel deep compassion for all those, for for? For all who are still like sheep without a shepherd, do we care about the impenitent and ungodly near our own doors? Do we care about the heathen, the Jew, the Muslim, and the Roman Catholic who doesn't know Christ? Do we use every means and give our money willingly to spread the gospel around the world? These are serious questions that demand a serious reply. Listen to this. The man or woman who cares nothing for the souls of other people is not like Jesus Christ. End quote. 
We've seen our Lord's prudence. We've seen our Lord's pity. Third snapshot of our Lord in this text in verses 35 through 44. The Lord's provision. The Lord's provision. Notice that as, the, as our Lord is ministering to the people, He's teaching the people, the masses of these people who are there, a physical need is identified. Verse 35, when it was already quite late, His disciples came to Him and said, This place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. I mean, if you were there and you were seeing Jesus ministering to the people and teaching them, you can understand the concern of the disciples, right? You can understand if you put yourself in their world, we shouldn't be so quick to judge. There are needs, physical needs that are identified here. Matthew fourteen twenty one tells us that there were about 5,000 men aside from women and children. Do the math, okay? You have the 5,000 men... And then let's say that there were at least a few thousand women, maybe 5,000 women, wives and single ladies who are there. Now you have about 10,000, right? At minimum. Then throw in there a couple of kids at minimum for some of these families. You have another 10,000 children or youth who are there. I mean, you have 20,000 plus potentially people who are present there. That's the size of a packed out staple center when the Lakers are good. Okay, when they're not, it's like a quarter of that, right? And now for the Clippers too. Okay, for some of you, slipper fence or Clipper fence. Sorry. <laughs> Packed out Staples Center. Imagine that. I think capacity is like eighteen thousand something, but they can fit more in the Staples Center. I mean, this is a need of massive proportions here. Think about it. Think about the people who are there. It's hot. It's uninhabited. People are getting hungry. Some of you moms who have babies or toddlers, what is, what's it like when things kind of get laid a little bit? It's, they wreak havoc, don't they? Crying babies, needy babies, mamas begin to get concerned, people looking dehydrated and hungry. I mean, understandably so, the disciples are very, very concerned. And there are no Walmarts and no Targets around for them to go anywhere. Uninhabited. Three different times we're told in this text that it's an uninhabited, unpopulated place, essentially. So they're anxious, understandably so. And notice their response. They want to get rid of the problem. Our Lord sees this, calmly responds in verse 37. Notice, places the responsibility upon them, doesn't he? Verse 37, but Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. (laughs) What? Um, Lord, say what? What? John's account in John 6 says that Jesus addressed Philip directly. Jesus asked Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat, Philip? He poses the question to Philip. And then John adds his commentary in John 6, 6. And this Jesus was saying to test him, to test Philip, for Jesus himself knew what he was intending to do. It was a test. Doesn't the Lord do that to us? Every day, huh? Be it little things, little needs that come up, big things that come up. And He does that not because He wants us to fend for ourselves, 
somehow by our own moral bootstraps or our own resources come up and energize enough resources to be able to provide for ourselves. He does that, beloved, so that we would seek Him. So that we would go to Him. This is a test for His disciples. Are they going to look to Jesus or their own resources? What are they going to do? Verse 37. And they said to him, I think somewhat sarcastically, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? One denarii was a day's pay for the common laborer. 200 denarii was essentially eight, nine, or eight months wages. Whether they had it or not, we don't know. Even if they had that amount of money, they could not buy enough food to feed all 20,000 plus people, right? Especially if they were teens in the, in the crowd <laughs> who eat like five times as much as a regular adult, right? Don't worry, teens. I was a teen too, so that's why I'm saying that, okay? I mean, that's a lot of food. You can't afford this. You can't do this. This is beyond their human ability. So the need is great. They can't do this on their own accord. But that is the point that Mark is driving at here in this text, isn't he? The need is great beyond their human ability. But listen to me. Jesus, who is God, is greater with unlimited power, unlimited and inexhaustible ability to do everything that he intends to do, right? That's the message of Mark. And so notice the provision of Christ the need has been identified. Notice his provision in verse 38. And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. The parallel account of John chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, tell us that it was specifically Andrew who told Jesus about a, a little boy who had five barley loaves and two fish. Small fish, salted for preservation. The loaves are no bigger than rolls or biscuits. Essentially salted crackers, that's what they are. This is a minimum, minimal amount of food here. What's Jesus going to do with this small amount of food? Verse 39, And Jesus commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Jesus recognizes the need. He takes control of the situation, right? Seeing, helping his disciples see their inadequacy that they cannot provide this on their own. He takes control of the situation, organizes the people, all the while he works through the disciples. I love that detail in verse 39. If you notice, of green grass. It reminds me of Psalm 23, doesn't it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Later on, in John chapter 10, Jesus is going to talk about the fact that He is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And many of the people who are going to hear this probably were here, and they're going to be fed by Jesus. He is the great shepherd leading and caring and providing for these people who are there. And then so quickly, so unembellished, Verses 41 through 42 are two of the most understated verses in the whole Bible in the light of this, the massive nature of this miracle. Notice verse 41. And Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. 
And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, that is, he gave thanks for it, and broke the loaves and kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. That verb there, kept giving them, has the idea of he was continually giving, distributing to the disciples, so that they in turn would distribute to others. And he divided up the two fish among them all. Just like that. So unembellished. We're not giving the specifics. How did it all come about? What would what were people's facial expressions? I mean, I would take it that most people probably didn't have a clear view of Jesus. But you know who did? The disciples did, didn't they? The disciples. Who in the future, after Jesus rises from the dead, are going to have to go out and preach Christ from conviction. Because they saw things like these that he provided for people's physical needs and he provided for the forgiveness of sins. They needed to see this just like every other miracle. So they see this. After Jesus gives thanks, they become his waiters and they keep making their rounds, keep on distributing the food as it keeps coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. Can you imagine what they were thinking? Holy cow, what's going on here? Listen, from very simple means, Jesus creates and provides for all these people, doesn't he? All these people. And the reader of the Gospel of Mark asks, how? How can this be that he could do this in verses 41 to 42 just like that? Just like that. And Mark's answer is this. Jesus is God who creates and provides abundantly, unlimited in power, unlimited as far as his ability to do anything that he wants to do. Why? Because he's the God-man. That's why. He's the God-man. And please underline verse 42. They all ate and were satisfied. What a meal, huh? What a meal. There's no kind of fish that you've ever tasted that would taste like this, right? No bread, even red lobster bread, wouldn't have tasted like these crackers, right? Some say that this was not a miracle, but an exaggeration of Jesus where he probably just gave the people a little sampling of fish and a little cracker, kind of like we're going to do in communion after the message today. It's a little sampling to strip it of its miraculous nature. But listen to me, the sense here is that every person was fully satisfied. Stuffed is the idea here. Stuffed. Like yesterday when my wife made some amazing spaghetti and I was like, honey, I'm stuffed. Three plates I had. Shouldn't have had that many. Fully satiated. I want no more. In fact, notice there were leftovers. Verse 43, for those who say that this wasn't a miracle, as it's described here in Mark, verse 43, and they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. Why 12? Why do you think? 12 apostles. Now they had takeout. The apostles did. A to-go meal for their mission. Man. Look at verse 44. Mark doesn't want us to miss the magnitude of the miracle, so he wraps up this particular account or narrative. Verse 44, there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Remember, there were a lot more than just the men, right? 
Another 5,000 ladies at least. At least another couple of kids per family. In excess of 20,000 plus people who were fully satisfied, stuffed to the brim. And on top of that, after gathering all of the leftovers, 12 baskets full of food. Oh, our God is a God of abundance, isn't he? Limited by any. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can create anything, provide for any need. And that's Mark's point. Look at Jesus. Behold Him in His glory. How beautiful He is. He alone, in light of who He is, the God-man can go to the cross and die in your place for your sins if you will put your trust in Him. No one compares to Him. He's the incomparable one. The unrivaled one in power and ability. How important is this miracle? Listen, all four Gospels have this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And just to put that in perspective, there's only one other miracle recorded in all four Gospels. Can you guess which miracle that is? Somebody said it, the resurrection. The resurrection. That's how important the feeding of the 5,000 is. All four Gospel accounts give their perspective about this particular miracle of the feeding of of the 5,000. Well, beloved, what additional lessons do we learn from this miracle? And walking through this narrative, apart from the, the great power of Christ, the great provision of Christ, pointing to who He is, I think there are primarily two lessons for, for us. One is this. Christ alone satisfies Christ alone satisfies. He's the bread of life. He alone satisfies. Pastor, are you playing fast and loose with the text? Where do you get that from? Go with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John's account, in John's account, this is... We pick it up after the feeding of the 5,000... After Jesus walks on the water, which we're going to see next Sunday morning from Mark, there are multitudes who are tenaciously looking for Jesus here in John chapter 6, and they find him at his ministry headquarters in Capernaum. Notice verse 25 of John 6. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? All of these people are, most of, most of them were fed in the feeding of the 5,000. When did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Listen to this. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, namely Himself, will give to you. For on Him, meaning Christ, the Father God has set His seal." Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom God has sent. So they said to him, verse 30, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They want another sign from Jesus. 
Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Here's the application for us. Verse 33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Who doesn't want that, right? Well, wonder bread. Give it to us, Lord. They're thinking physical bread. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Essentially, Jesus is saying, you guys keep coming for the physical food. Listen to me. Your problem is a spiritual one. You don't understand who I am and what I'm about to do on the cross in a few months from this. All they want is free food. Give them more free food. But greater than the physical need was their spiritual need, right? You know what they needed? They needed forgiveness of sins found in Christ. They needed to stop being rebel sinners and put their trust in this one who was performing these amazing, miraculous signs to point and confirm his claims as the God-man who would pay for sins on the cross. They just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. Christ alone satisfies. And there may be some of you sitting in here this morning. In fact, I know there, there are. It's all about the earthly. It's all about the physical stuff that you could accumulate. It's all about your career. It's all about this and that thing. And yet you have not dealt sincerely with your sin before a holy God. You are not right with God. You are a rebel sinner who continues to turn your back on the bread of life who is the only one who can satisfy your longing soul. Do you understand that? There's also a lesson for us who are Christians here. And it is this. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Maybe I should pose that as a question. Is he enough for you if you're a Christian this morning? Are you living by the conviction that Jesus is all you need? And anything else is just Grace and blessings and thank you, Lord. If those things that you love most, career, possessions, a good job, a relationship or relationships, a nice bank account, comforts, if all of those things were taken away, or you, if you don't have some of those, if none of those things ever were achieved by you, would Christ be enough? Would He be enough if you're in Christ? Is He sufficient? Is He sufficient? See, we may look at the lack of faith of the disciples, especially after watching Jesus do all of these miracles, including this one, and critically say, in a, in a self-righteously, judgmental way, say, what's wrong with these guys? I mean, how come they don't rest in Jesus? Look at all that He's done. Look at how, how come they don't trust in Him and go to Him. And they should have just known that He could have provided for all of these people instead of looking for their own resources. What is wrong with those guys? But isn't that how we tend to live too? 
Not only is this passage a snapshot, series of snapshots of Christ, it's also a snapshot of the disciples, right? And something that we look at and we have to examine ourselves. Oftentimes, do we not trust in ourselves rather than our Savior? How oftentimes do we not doubt His genuine care and concern for us? How oftentimes do we not doubt His power and His provision? How oftentimes do we not get anxious and long to our, look to our personal resources rather than Christ? Beloved, this is a, a snapshot of us, isn't it? Exposes our hearts that don't look to Jesus as the all-sufficient one who can provide for everything that we need, that is. Instead of running to our loving shepherd first and resting in him, what do we do? We grumble and complain to others about our circumstances, about other people, about things not changing the way that we would want them to see changed. Instead of going to the merciful and faithful high priest who is Jesus so that he changes our hearts as well and we pour out our heart before him at the throne of grace to receive mercy, What do we do? We go to other people. We complain to other people. Or we look to change our circumstances. Or get out of difficult circumstances that God has made it very clear that we should stay in and live well under His grace there. We need to look to Jesus. He is enough, isn't He? He's enough. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson quote. All true Christians should store up facts like these in their minds and remember them in time of need. We live in the midst of an evil world and see few with us and many against us. We carry within us a weak heart, too ready at any moment to turn aside from the right way. We have near us at every moment a busy devil watching continually for our hesitation and seeking to lead us into temptation. Where shall we turn for comfort then? What will keep faith alive and preserve us from sinking into despair? There is only one definitive answer. We must look to Jesus. We must think of His almighty power and His wonders of old. We must recall how He can create food for His people out of nothing and meet the needs of those who follow Him, even in the desert. And as we think these thoughts, we must remember that this Jesus still lives, never changes, and is on our side as Christians, end quote. Beloved, Christ is enough, isn't He? Christ is enough. Mark wants you and I to know that we need to live in the light of the fact that Jesus is God, the bread of life, in whom we find rest and provision for all we need. He's all that we need. All that we need. You know, Augustine of Hippo finally found rest in his Savior one day. For so long, this man looked for satisfaction and and pleasure in women and education, intellectual pursuits, career, prestige, possessions, and popularity. But listen to me, he never found the rest or that satisfaction that he needed in any of those things. Any of them. It wasn't until Augustine finally saw Jesus as the bread of life who could satisfy his heart, that he found rest and peace. Until that time. And in his classic book, Confessions, that I would recommend any of you to read if you haven't read that. Augustine's Confessions, he wrote this, quote, 
Great are you, Lord. Or great are you, O Lord. And exceedingly worthy of praise. Your power is immense and your wisdom beyond reckoning. And so we men who are due part of your creation long to praise you. We also carry carry our mortality about with us. Carry the evidence of our sins and with it the proof that you thwart the proud. You arouse us so that so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself. And listen to this. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I pray and hope that if you don't know Christ today, that today you would put your trust in Jesus. Jesus is enough. He satisfies. He's the bread of life. Amen? Let me pray for us. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the beautiful snapshots of your Son, our Savior, our Redeemer. Help us to behold Him, to worship Him, to live for Him. Help us to delight in Him so that duty is not burdensome in serving our Savior. Help us to be people who are committed to beholding Him so that we also are eager makers of disciples in this world. That's why we're here. To share Christ, this Christ, this beautiful, glorious, wondrous Christ with people that not only heals powerfully from physical infirmities, but most importantly, He alone is the forgiver of sins. Father, help us to exalt Him. Help us to live for Him. We pray in Your name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.